Look, Billy, we all understand what the problem is. We have to okay, replace... Okay, good. What's the problem? The problem is we have to replace three key players in our nope. lineup. What's the problem? Same as it's ever been. We've got to replace these guys with what we have existing. No, nope. what's the problem, Barry? We need 38 home runs, 120 RBIs, and 47 doubles to replace. The problem we're trying to solve is that there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's us. It's an unfair game. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thanks for tuning in this week. There is an epidemic failure in our cities to understand how value is created. Uh, there's an epidemic failure to understand how uh, financial value and wealth is created and brought to bear, uh, particularly when it comes to local governments and local government budgets. There's an epic failure uh, of our ability to understand return on investment and what a real public return on investment is. And today I want to talk a little bit about that epic failure, but I, I don't want to talk about it solely in terms of the economics and finances of our place. But I want to use an analogy to kind of set things up and, and help you grasp and understand how we actually need to change our thinking and how radical our thinking needs to change in order for us to get to a better place. There is an epidemic failure within the game to understand what is really happening. And this leads people who run Major League Baseball teams to misjudge their players and mismanage their teams. Now, many of you know that I am a huge baseball fan. Uh, I'm a Minnesota Twins fan. I uh, have been for life. Write occasionally about the Twins on the blog and, and I've spoken about baseball a few times here that last clip and the opening one to the show of course were from the movie Moneyball and the movie Moneyball and the book Moneyball some of the greatest uh, stuff I've ever read I've ever seen uh, absolutely has uh, inspired me uh, to try to have a different conversation about our places uh, I've spent a couple weeks this summer in North Carolina two separate occasions, uh, with Joe Minicozzi of Urban 3. Uh, Joe's from Asheville. Him and I have spoken at different venues around the country, but this summer we've spent some time together uh, talking to different groups around North Carolina. And one of the things I find so compelling about Joe's stuff is that he has literally broken uh, the statistics, the data, down in a very simple and easy to understand way, a very rudimentary way, but a way that is just incredibly powerful in terms of getting at the root understanding of what makes a place prosperous and what makes a place valuable. Uh, we have an epidemic failure in our cities to grasp this very simple stuff. And because of that, we do just crazy, crazy things uh, with our capital investments and with our finances the same way that baseball teams do when they're trying to assemble a winning team. Okay, people who run ball clubs, they think in terms of buying players. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be 
to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. So let's talk about baseball for a second. Because this quote is just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's magical in the sense that it encapsulates exactly what the difference is between the, the old time way people looked at ball clubs and the new modern way that GMs look at assembling ball clubs. Uh, in the past, we evaluated players. And that was a very logical thing. You know, if you had someone who uh, was a great athlete, uh, had a great build, hit a lot of home runs, uh, drove the ball around the field, uh, batted in a lot of players, uh, you were looking at someone who was a star. You were looking at someone who was a great player. And if you amassed enough great players on your team, you were going to win. Uh, that, that was the idea. And the emphasis here is on scouting. You know, let's go out and let's identify those great players. Let's bring them in. Uh, let's, you know, if we're the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers or some big market team, let's outbid the competition for the greatest players, the best players in the league. And let's bring them in on the team and, and we're going to have a winning team. The whole concept behind sabermetrics and the, basically the, the core uh, insights behind the book Moneyball and the Oakland A's uh, under Billy Bean when they started to kind of introduce this approach quite frankly, out of desperation, which we're going to get to here in a second, uh, was that this was not a real accurate way to judge talent. This was not an accurate way uh, to spend money on acquiring players. Let me get back to Pete here for a sec. Okay, people who run ball clubs, they think in terms of buying players. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. You're trying to replace Johnny Damon. The Boston Red Sox see Johnny Damon and they see a star who's worth seven and a half million dollars a year. When I see Johnny Damon, what I see is is an imperfect understanding of where runs come from. The guy's got a great glove. He's a decent leadoff hitter. He can steal bases, but is he worth the seven and a half million dollars a year that the Boston Red Sox are paying him? No. Baseball thinking is medieval. They are asking all the wrong questions. Baseball thinking is medieval. They're asking all the wrong questions. And the way we run our cities, the way we build our places, the way we finance them, the way we seek to create growth and development and jobs and opportunity is completely medieval. We are asking all the wrong questions. Your goal shouldn't be to buy wins. Your goal should be to buy runs. And why is that? Because if you score more runs than your opponent, you win, right? In baseball, the idea is that you have the highest score at the end of the game. And if you have the highest score at the end of the game, you win the game. And whoever wins the most games goes to the postseason. The whole idea is not to buy wins. You can't get the greatest players and, and, and expect them to win. You have to actually focus on the submetric that produces wins. The submetric that produces wins is runs. If you get guys that can get on base, they can score runs. If you get guys who don't make outs, they will score runs. And the teams that score runs are the ones that get on base and the ones that don't make outs. And as soon as you understand that, now you're starting to look deeper into the stats. You're not just getting the flashy guy with the big statistics. You're not just looking for the player uh, who's, you know, ripped 
and uh, as, as you'll hear in a second, you know, has the attractive girlfriend. Uh, you're actually looking for uh, a player that has some very specific qualities. They get on base, they produce. At the city level, we're trying to buy jobs and we're trying to buy growth. And we spend all kinds of money and all kinds of resources trying to create jobs and growth. What are we doing? The reality is we shouldn't be trying to buy wins. We should be trying to buy runs. We shouldn't be swinging for the fences on jobs and growth. We should be trying to buy productivity. What are the places that give us the greatest return on our investment? Where are the places that are the most financially productive? That should be our goal. And the wins come from getting on base. If you score more runs, you win more games. If your city is more productive, it is going to create jobs, it is going to create growth, it is going to create wealth, it is going to create opportunity. If your city is full of places that are generating more revenue and more income for the city than they're generating expenses, that's a city that's going to grow wealthy. That's a place that's going to mature in the right way. And so the focus shouldn't be on the big splashy player, the big name, the big statistics. The focus needs to be on productivity. How do we find and identify the most productive players? That's how we win at this unfair game. Especially, especially, especially if we are a city on a budget. It's about getting things down to one number. Using stats the way we read them will find value in players that nobody else can see. People are overlooked for a variety of biased reasons and perceived flaws. Age, appearance, personality. Bill James and mathematics cut straight through that. The whole idea behind the sabermetrics movement or this, the idea of sabermetrics was that you could just take math, you can take data, and you can actually look at how a player performs uh, historically, and you can use that to project how the player will perform in the future. And when you start doing this, when you start analyzing this, what you see is that the, the things that we were valuing in players were really not that important. And I'll give you one example. Uh, runs batted in. Runs batted in is a statistic. It's actually part of the triple crown in baseball. The triple crown is batting average, home runs, and runs batted in. And the runs batted in is looked at as this kind of, if you've got a high RBI total, uh, you're a masher. You know, you're someone who's driving in a lot of runs. You're making things happen. You're really valuable. And it's one of those statistics that's just been with us for a long, long time. It's a statistic that the player actually has very little control over, uh, has very little control over. Because if you're, for instance, the top of the order, if you're the first batter up, you really don't have a lot of chance to get an RBI on your at-bat. You have very little chance to drive in a run. The only way you can drive in a run if you're the first person up is to hit a home run because there's nobody on base. If you're the fourth batter up, even if you're not that as good a hitter as the first batter up, your likelihood of getting an RBI is much greater simply because there's three guys who have batted in front of you. And if one or two of them have gotten on base, there's actually someone that you can hit home. And so even if you're not as productive of a hitter, you're still going uh, to have more RBIs than that leadoff person. So 
when we look at baseball players and we judge RBIs, we say, well, wow, that person had 120 RBI last year. Uh, that, that's not a statistic that is really predictive of how well they'll do in the upcoming year. Uh, you know, maybe um, they'll be put in a different place in the lineup and their RBI totals will drop. Maybe they'll get on a team uh, that has a great leadoff hitter and their RBI totals will go up. Uh, it's not a predictive statistic. What is a predictive statistic? Uh, if you're narrowing it down to kind of one statistic from a ball player standpoint, on-base percentage is, a, is an amazing statistic. Because uh, more so than batting average, uh, more so than you know, balls in play or anything, uh, the, the, the on-base percentage kind of tells you just how productive this player is. How frequently does this player not make an out? And what it winds up happening is that the players who uh, are the best at getting on base uh, are the ones who not only are the most productive, but they're the ones that score the most runs. are the ones that create the most run scoring opportunities. And so if you just look at like one simple statistic, on base percentage uh, is a pretty good one. Uh, slugging percentage is another one. Slugging percentage is the percent of your hits that go for extra bases. So it, when you get a hit, how many of those hits uh, are going to be doubles, triples, or home runs? And what they've done, what, what Bill James and what the kind of early sabermetrics people did is they realized that if you add uh, on-base percentage and slugging together, you get something that they call OPS, uh, on-base plus slugging. And OPS is a, a really good predictor of success. If you have a high OPS... That means you're either getting on base at a really high clip and or you're hitting a lot of extra bases. You're driving the ball real well. Now, OPS does not correlate necessarily with home runs. It does not necessarily correlate with RBI totals. It does not correlate with a lot of the things that the conventional wisdom of baseball general managers and scouts were using to value players. Let's switch over to cities. Because Joe Manicosi's work is just amazing. Him and I, you know, did these presentations all over. And I would just be in stunned amazement because we would go visit a site and take some pictures as he's kind of prepping for the, the next talk of the day. And we'd stop at the big, you know, outlet mall that was just built on the edge of the city. Something that got tons of subsidies and, you know, had the highway department building new ramps for, uh, had the transit station setting up new stops for, had, uh, you know, all of the, not only outlet mall, but all the accompanying things like the gas station, uh, the drive through restaurants, the Applebee's, all, you know, all, all that stuff was there. And you're looking at this site saying, you know, this is it. I mean, this is the place that everybody's trying to get. This is a development style that everybody's trying to get because uh, it's the big cash thing. It pays off. You know, you got this site that's worth $20 million. Uh, how, can, how can it possibly not be the greatest thing financially that our city's ever done? And then we go into the, the rundown portion of town. Uh, the place that is neglected, you've got the tattoo parlors, you've got the pawn shops, you've got all these one and two story little dumpy buildings. And we start taking pictures of those. And it's like, Joe, what's up here? Uh, and he's like, these are the places that, that are the big payoffs. These are the places that are the most productive. The simple math that Joe's doing is just taking uh, the value divided by the land area. It's simply the productivity, the value per area of the land. 
And for me, it's a brilliant statistic because the larger the lot, you know, when you have that big outlet mall, it costs a fortune to provide services out to that place. But when you have, and my favorite one that he was using was the little Jimmy's Pizza place. Uh, he has this little tiny uh, one-story pizza shack, just this kind of rundown little place. And he would show it. And Jimmy's Pizza was playing on a, on a per-foot basis uh, a, a much, much higher effective tax rate than any of the Walmarts or the Targets or the big splashy malls or any of that stuff. It was incredibly, incredibly productive. You could have polled everybody in the Piedmont region and you could have asked them, you know, which one of these is going to be a, a, a better investment for the community in terms of the return on investment, the productivity, the amount of money you get back for the amount of money it costs you to maintain and service it. And everyone would have said that big outlet mall, that Walmart store, that Target uh, is Jimmy's Pizza. It's the little tattoo parlor. It's the little shop in the traditional development style. And when you start to measure it in the right way, when you start to actually apply some sabermetric thinking, uh, instead of just the gut dogma that we've all kind of grown up with, it, you find some really revealing things. Matty, who do you got? I like Geronimo. Yes. Hey, guy's an athlete, big, fast, talented. Top of my list. Clean cut, good face. Yeah, good job. Five tools time. Good looking ball player. Can he hit? He's got a beautiful swing, right, Barry? The ball explodes off his back. He throws the club head at the ball, and when he connects, it he drives it. It pops off the bat. You can hear it all over the ballpark. A lot of pop coming off the bat. It's effort. If he's a good hitter, why doesn't he hit good? If he's a good hitter, why doesn't he hit good? It's a simple question. It's like an obvious, obvious question. This was one of the, the most mind-blowing scenes when I watched the movie because I, I watched those scouts sitting around the table kind of jawing about each player. You know, oh my gosh, he's a five-tool guy. Uh, the ball just pops off the bat. You know, he's got a good jaw. He's a good-looking guy. And, and you, you're listening to this, and, and to me, I'm saying, gosh, I, I've been in meetings like this. I've been in meetings like this where the developer comes in you're like, oh, yeah, this is a great development. This is a great subdivision. Uh, the, the, the big box store comes in. It's like, yeah, this is wonderful. We got to have that. This is growth and development. And nobody asked the question, you know, can he hit? Can he hit? Is a darn baseball player. Can he hit the ball? Well, you know, Billy, uh, you're asking the wrong questions. I mean, he's got all the tools. Everything's there. Uh, you know, he's going to um, come around. Give him some at-bats. Let him work it. Uh, nobody ever asked the question, does this make any financial sense? Is this place going to be productive? Are we going to get the money back that we invest in? Uh, is this the best use of our money? We never ask these questions. Uh, and I've been around, you know, it's the engineers, it's the planners, it's the economic development, it's the politicians, it's the whole deal. They're all sitting around the table like these scouts uh, with their dogmatic things. And nobody actually does the math. Nobody pulls the numbers. Artie. Who do you like? I, I like Perez. He's uh, got a classic swing. He's real clean stroke. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Can't hit the curveball. Well, there's some work to be done. I'll admit that. Yeah, but, there is. Uh, he's noticeable. Got an ugly girlfriend. What's that mean? 
Ugly girlfriend means no confidence. Okay. Oh, no, you guys are full of it. Artie is right. This guy's got an attitude. An attitude is good. I mean, he's the kind of guy who walks into a room. His dick has already been there for two minutes. Yeah, he passes the eye candy test. He's got the looks. He's ready to play the part. He just needs to get some playing time. I'm just saying. His girlfriend is a six at best. Look, that was probably my favorite line in the whole movie. His girlfriend's a six at best. You know, as if a guy's girlfriend, it, you know, is any type of predictor of what a baseball player would be. My gosh, we do this all the time with cities. Uh, I, I, I've talked, you know, many, many times, and I show in the curbside chat presentation quite often, the Taco John's in my hometown. I'm actually looking out the window at it right now as I do this podcast. Uh, you know, the beautiful, brand new, shiny, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it looks new. It's got nice grass, nice turf around it. It's got a nice sign. The siding's all brand new. Everything about it is shiny and new. And you go two blocks over to the rundown junky place with the pawn shop and the bail bonds and the liquor stores that everybody says is just the junkiest block in town. But when you look at the numbers, can he hit? Can he hit that rundown junkie block is worth 42% more than that Taco John's the same area, the same size, the same amount of public infrastructure, the same, everything. It is more productive. We're asking about people's girlfriends. We're not asking the real thing. We're not actually like taking the numbers and saying, you know, okay, uh, does he hit? Is this a productive place? David Justice. Oh, no. Not a good idea, Billy. Old man Justice? Why is that? Steinbrenner is so pissed at his decline that he's willing to eat a big chunk of his contract just to get rid of him. Anybody exactly. Can. Ten years ago, David Justice, big name. Been a lot of big games. He's going to really help our season tickets early in the year, but we get in the dog days in July and August. He's lucky if he's going to hit his weight. Billy, his legs yeah. are gone. Billy. Uh, He's a defensive liability, and I question whether the bat speed's still there. His legs are gone. Grady. We'll be lucky to get 60 games out of him. Why do you like him? Because he gets on base. Why do I like him? Because he gets on base. Why do I like that Jimmy's Pizza? Because it's darn productive. If we actually looked at and measured our cities and said, you know, okay, uh, where are those most productive places? What you would find is the same reaction, and this is what I find all the time, the same reaction that uh, Billy Bean in this scene gets from everybody. He throws up the name David Justice. Old man Justice. How can we be going after this guy? Uh, he's washed up. His legs are... You know, why are we going after him? Pete, because he gets on base. He's productive. He's productive. I'm working on this little neighborhood up the street here, the same one that is the Taco John's is in and the neighborhood behind there. And I go around the city and I talk to people about it and I start saying, you know, this is an important neighborhood. The streetcar used to run through here. It's got some nice bones. Uh, there's actually some, some decent homes in here. And you know the reaction that I get? I get the chuck. It's just a bunch of renters that live there. Nobody has pride of ownership. Nobody cares about this place. Uh, I get the whole feedback of, you know, Chuck, well, I, I wouldn't live there. I, I, I wouldn't live in that neighborhood. Why are you, you know, so fixated on uh, trying to fix it and make other people live there? The, you know, no one's going to want to live in those, those little houses out there. Nobody asks the central question. Does it, can they hit? Is the place productive? 
I've done the research. I've compared it. I've compared 40 acres of that rundown, junky neighborhood that nobody wants to live in with a bunch of transient renters that everybody devalues. And I've compared that with the nice, shiny new subdivision on the edge of town, 40 acres to 40 acres. And you know what? This junky neighborhood outperforms it every single time. Every single time. Do the math. Do the math. Scott Hatterberg. Who? Hatterberg. Exactly. Oh, Sounds like an Oakland A already. Okay. Yes, he's had a little problem with his elbow. Oh, problem. He can't throw. He's got he's a career 260 hitter. The best part of his career is over. I say it's just getting started. I know Boston wants to cut him, and no one wants to pick him up. That's good for us. He's cheap. Let me get this. Let me get this straight. You're going to get a guy that's been released by half the organizations in professional baseball because he's got non-repairable nerve damage in his elbow, and he can't throw. He can't throw, and he can't field. But what can he do? Oh boy, guys, check your reports, or I'm going to point at Pete. He gets on base. He gets on base. So he walks a lot. He gets on base a lot. Rocco, do I care if it's a walk or a hit? Pete? You do not. I do not. He gets on base. Do I care if it's a walk or a hit? Pete? You do not care. No, you don't care. Why? Because a walk is as good as a hit. It's productive. You're getting on base. Remember we talked about on base percentage being a very good indicator of if you're going to score runs? Do we care? I mean, at the end of the day, do we care if it's a pawn shop or, or, or a retail place? Sure we do. You know, I'm not advocating for a city of, uh, you know, of pawn shops and tattoo parlors. But what I'm saying is that the style of development, the pattern of development that we have overlooked, uh, the traditional development pattern with the buildings built up to the build two line, shared walls, uh, one, two-story buildings, the simple little neighborhoods that we used to build all over the place were amazingly productive financially, far superior to anything we've built post-World War II. And we devalue those places because they're not shiny and new, because they're not the, the latest and greatest thing, uh, because they don't have parking lots and drive-throughs and, and all the stuff that we've come to associate with modern development and modern prosperity. But do we care if it's a hit? Or a walk, we don't. What do we care about? It gets on base. We care that it's productive. And at the end of the day, it, you know, if you have a city uh, that is full of you know townhouses uh, and little retail stores, and you're lacking the the big Walmart, you're lacking the drive-through restaurant, you're lacking the uh, you know the uh, the split-entry three-car garage home. Uh, yeah, there's a certain amount of the market segment that you're not going to be capturing there. There's a certain amount of the population that's going to want those things uh, that are not going to locate in your city. You know what? Every city that is attracting those people is losing money doing it. Every place that is trying to appeal to that market segment is not only fighting against everybody else, but they're fighting against their own pocketbook. They're losing money doing it. They are not doing the math. Do the math. You'll find out that your most productive places are your traditional neighborhoods. And if you focus on just improving those, making those better, uh, it, it's amazing the gains that you can find. And it's amazing when you start building on the places that are very productive, uh, how much more valuable and productive they become. You don't have a crystal ball. 
You can't look at a kid and predict his future any more than I can. I've sat at those kitchen tables with you and listened to you tell those parents. When I know, I know. And when it comes to your son, I know. And you don't. You don't. This is one of those powerful subplots or, or kind of counterplots that uh, or parallel plot in, in the movie, in the book that, that really made the whole thing. And that is the character of Billy Bean himself, a, a guy who uh, had all the, you know, had all the things that the old time scout said you needed, had all the tools, uh, you know, a five tool player, great build, probably had a good looking girlfriend who that, who knows, um, you know, had all the things that the scout said you need to, you need to have in order to become successful. And Billy Bean, you know, worked his way up through the minors, uh, was modestly successful. But, you know, when you evaluate his statistics, you see that he really, you know, was getting promoted more on what people saw as his potential than his actual track record. And when he got to the major leagues, he struggled. Uh, He never really did establish himself. He had a very mediocre career. Uh, he wound up kind of bouncing around towards the end with teams like the Minnesota Twins that looked at him as kind of a, a reclamation project. Uh, and he just didn't have a major league career. You know what? Being in the major leagues is really tough. And there's a lot of great players. There's a lot of amazing athletes uh, that can't hit a curveball. Uh, Michael Jordan, perhaps the greatest athlete of you know my youth, couldn't play baseball. Uh, you know, he, he was in a double A team and he literally uh, was not a good player. That's not because he's not a great athlete. It's just because playing baseball is a very special skill. The point here being these scouts with the dogma and their kind of antiquated ways of evaluating talent and, and identifying value would look at players, not their statistics, not their track record, but look at all these other arbitrary kind of things. And say, you know what? Your kid's going to be a star. You are going to be a star. You've got everything it takes to be great at this game. And as Billy Bean said in that scene, you think you know what you're talking about, but you don't. You don't know what you're talking about. And you know what? When we come to cities, we see this. I see the same exact thing again and again and again. I see these economic development advisors with all the best intentions standing up there saying, you know, if we just subsidize this business to come into town, it's going to create jobs. It's going to create prosperity. Uh, we're going to have all this growth. It's going to be great for us. And you know what? They don't know that. They don't know that. They haven't run the numbers. They haven't sat down and figured it out. They don't know what it's going to cost the city long term. They don't know what businesses it's going to displace. They don't know, uh, you know, what other opportunities are going to happen. And the funny thing is that when they look at other cities, they they cherry pick. They go around and they say, well, you know what? I saw the city up the road do this, and it worked out really well. What they don't tell you is that for every one city that does it, there's how many dozens of them that do the same thing where it doesn't work out. I see this with engineers all the time. You know what? We need to widen out this road. We need to make this a four lane. We need to add these turn lanes. We need to do this here. Why? Because I know. I know what's going to happen. I've done the projections. I've seen it. And you know what? They don't know. They don't know. And nobody ever goes back to look at it. Nobody ever go back to question it. Uh, we've got a couple projects here locally uh, where there have been some traffic projections done. And we're actually going back and looking at what the projections were and looking at what's actually happened. And it is abysmal how bad it is. 
It's abysmal how little we knew when we thought we knew so much. I see planners do this all the time too. The planning profession will sit down and they'll say, here's our zoning map and here's where our commercial property is and here's our R1 and here's our R2 and here's our R3 and here's our R4 and here's our R5. And they say, well, how do you know how much R2, R3, R4 and R5 to have? And they go, well, we just know. We know. We've sat down and figured it out. We've run our calculations. We've done our projections. We know. We know what it is. And they don't. They don't know. They have no idea. They're just guessing. And if you go back and look at the things that they've done and you compare it, you see they don't know. They don't know. What is the lesson of Moneyball? It's that the only thing you can know are the things that you can measure. It's the things that you can actually look at and say, look, I, I can see what this guy's on-base percentage is. I can see what his slugging percentage has been through single A, through double A, through triple A. And I can see a pattern here that we can project out uh, you know, for next year, the year after, the year after that. We can make some decent projections based on past performance. When we look at cities, and we're talking about adding new lanes or subsidizing businesses or building new developments on the edge of town, and we don't ever run the numbers, and we don't ever check our math, and we don't ever see what worked historically, and we don't ever look at where our most productive places are, we're no better than those scouts that are saying, hey, the guy's got a cute girlfriend. He must be a good player. We actually need to do the math. And when you do the math, something amazing happens. What happens is the productive places in the community stand out. They, stand, they just jump up at you. And when you go around and you look at them and you say, wow, this is where we're getting the most tax revenue per square foot. I am shocked. This is not where the places that I would have guessed. But you know what? We can do more of this stuff. And we can do more of it and more of it and more of it. And you know what we can do? We can actually do it better than what it is now. Because what you're looking at in most instances is the neglected, run-down, atrophied historical development pattern. You're literally looking at the remnants of massive value and wealth of uh, 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 prior generations created. And it holds its value even though we've done everything we can in our automobile-centric design approach to destroy that value. Imagine how much more productive these already productive places would be if we just showed them a little bit of love, if we just played to their strengths. If instead of ripping out all the parking so that we can have an extra driving lane, we actually narrowed the lane and slowed the traffic down so that more people could walk there. Instead of banning the second-story uh, residential or the ability to convert your garage to an accessory apartment, we actually started allowing those things, allowing a home business uh, into a neighborhood so that people actually had options. Instead of putting, and I'm looking out the window again, at these like horrendous street lights that are like, you know, these torch lights that just shine light uh, in every direction. Instead of being just indiscriminate and stupid about how we... Uh, design public places, thinking only about our cars going to be able to see at this intersection. We actually took the time to think about how people interact with our cities. Imagine how much more productive these already massively productive places would be. Our thinking is medieval. We're asking all the wrong questions. We literally need to start doing the math 
and start asking a different set of questions about the productivity of our places. If we do that, we can start to build some really spectacular strong towns. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, okay, this is great, Chuck. Um, but, you know, I, I'm from a big city or what have you, and, and we got plenty of money to invest in all this stuff, and, and that's fine. I get it. Um, I have to laugh, you know, sometimes when I'll, I'll go to Omaha or I'll go to Kansas City or I'll go to, you know, some uh, kind of, you know, big city, but some, you know, Midwestern kind of place. And, and they'll say something like, hey, you know, the High Line uh, in New York is just fantastic. I'd love to do something like that here. And I'm like, you know, dude, it's like $13 million a mile or some like insane sum of money. Uh, you know, you've got tons of people there. It's a, it's a totally different environment. Uh, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, when, when Johan Santana became a free agent a, a decade ago, uh, and the, the Mets signed him to this seven, nine year contract or whatever, Albert Pujols becomes a free agent last year. And there's people like, oh, the twins should sign him. Uh, you know, that's insane. We don't do that. That's not our style of ball. We, we don't have that team. We don't have that payroll. And quite frankly, we can't afford to make a mistake of that magnitude. One of the most important things we need to do is to do what the Oakland GM does in this scene with Billy Bean, who you can imagine Billy Bean being, uh, in this case, the economic development advisor, the engineer, or the planner, or the politician, really, who wants uh, to do the big splashy project because they think it's going to create growth uh, and opportunity and wealth and jobs and, uh, and all the great things that we're after. My bars take this team to a championship. Billy, we're a small market team and you're a small market GM. I'm asking you to be okay not spending money that I don't have. And I'm asking you to take a deep breath, shake off the loss, get back in a room with your guys and figure out how to find replacements for the guys we lost with the money that we do have. I, I, I'm not leaving here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I can't leave here with that. What else can I help you with? Let's get out there with the money that we have and do the best that we can with it. And it's fascinating because as soon as you put that limitation on, it changes everything. Uh, I had this really long uh, meeting with a friend of mine who is an engineer, and he made me promise I wouldn't blog about him. Uh, and uh, I don't know if he said I couldn't podcast about him, but I told him I would, I would not drag him into this in a personal nature. Uh, so I won't. Uh, but we had this really interesting conversation uh, where, you know, I was like continually frustrated with his approach because it was very uh, traffic centric. Uh, we need to do this from a traffic standpoint. We need to do that from a traffic standpoint. I'm like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? And he's like, I don't know. I just deal with traffic, um, you know. But as soon as and, and we, we talked a little bit about his long term budget and how the budget for the department, uh, you know, is stable. But yet the project, the number of, of lane miles that he's worked on uh, is kind of decline. The, the, the amount that is in poor condition is kind of continuing to kind of creep up. And long term, while he's, you know, in the short term able to do projects and make things meet, the long term prognosis is really difficult because uh, there's just so much to do and there's not enough money. There's not enough money to do it. And, you know, I asked the question, I'm like, well, what if, you know, have you ever sat down and just said, you know, 
this stuff here we can afford to do and then the rest of the stuff we're just never going to be able to get to and you know it's like no no we really haven't done that and that, that's you know from a political standpoint a really difficult thing to do and I, I get that on the other hand when you do it it's it's got to be a really liberating thing you know when when the gm uh, for the Oakland A's, if you can go in there and say, look, uh, I need a few more million dollars. I need five more, ten more million dollars a year so that I can sign this splashy player and that splashy player and, and what have you and keep our guys and, and come back and, and do this again next year. Uh, and the GM says, you know what? We don't have the money. I'm sorry. We don't have the money. So you're going to have to go out there with the money we have and do the best that you can do. Great things happen. And the book Moneyball is fascinating because they, they really weren't thinking along these lines until they became desperate. It wasn't until things got bad that they had to start to get innovative. It wasn't until things started to fall apart and they said, you know, well, what do we do in this hour of desperation that they actually came up with a different strategy, a strategy focusing on productivity? We're there, people. We're there, my friends. Our cities across the country are there. And while we're kind of cash flowing uh, in a lot of places and we're trying to make ends meet uh, and we're hopeful that the federal government will come to our rescue or the state will give us some money to do this or that, when you look at the long-term prognosis, we're all the Oakland A's with very, very few exceptions. It's time for us to start thinking in an innovative way. It's time for us to have that discipline to say, look, with the money we got, What's the best we can do? When we start to do that, when we start to place those limitations on ourselves so that we actually have to discipline ourselves to be innovative, be creative, look at our cities in a different way, uh, what we're going to find is that our thinking's medieval. It's backwards. We're doing all the wrong things. We're trying to buy wins when we should be trying to buy runs. We're not focusing on productivity we're focusing on all these voodoo dogmatic uh, measurements of prosperity that have no relationship to our bottom line. Let me just say one last thing in closing, because you know we focused in this podcast, and, and we focused to a large degree in, in this podcast in general on finance and economics of our places, and, and it's critically important. I know there's a, there's a segment out there of our listeners, and there's a segment of the readers of the blog that say, okay, that, that's great, Chuck, but cities are where people live. And we have to think about people and we have to uh, design places uh, for them. And, you know, the money is not our primary concern. I understand that. Uh, we need people like you, <laughs> quite frankly. And, uh, you know, if I'm assembling a, a staff at a city hall, uh, I have someone like me. I also have someone like you. Because we need both of us in, in the room together. And at the end of the day, uh, I'm not discounting uh, at all your values or your priorities or the things that you're saying about designing places for people. In fact, I'm actually augmenting them. I'm actually saying, yes, those are the critical things. Um, but I will throw this in. And I'm going to throw this in for the people who, you know, pine for the streetcar or pine for the new park or pine for the performing arts center, whatever it is that you think that would be just fantastic if your community had that it doesn't have today. You can't do any of those things long term if you're not solvent. 
you actually have to have a place that is solvent before you can successfully do all those things. And if you doubt me, I'll just give you exhibit A, which is Detroit. You know, Detroit is full of people who are very good people, uh, who a lot of people who desperately need our help and our assistance. Are they able to do any of the things that they should be doing today? No. Why? Because they're insolvent. They're broke. Their city is bankrupt. All of our cities in this country are headed in that direction. And it, you know, we can talk about building streetcars and performance centers and, and uh, parks and all those things. And, and I think that all of those things are important. But all of those things are the outcome of having a productive place. They're not a cause of a productive place. They're not the proxy for a productive place. If we don't take the money ball approach, if we don't start doing the math, if we don't get an idea of where wins come from, productivity, we're not going to get there and we're not going to be able to do all those things that you want to do. I'm deeply passionate about this. Uh, I want our cities to be successful and the reality is, is that the approach to do it uh, would not only make our cities financially better off, but would make our lives better, would help improve the quality of life for people living in these cities, living in these places. I look at this neighborhood out my window, and I, I run into people out there all the time that don't have cars, walk through this just horrendous environment to get you know their daily groceries. Uh, we just completely discount them. We can't do that. Uh, we actually have to build... Uh, places that not only are financially viable, uh, but places that uh, respect the people that live there, build off of those most productive places. And, and let me, I know I said I was going to close with that, but l let me along those lines uh, give you one little thing. We, we did a study uh, similar to Joe Minicozzi's analysis in the city of Memphis. I love the city of Memphis. I, I've mentioned this before. I think it's just a fantastic place. Um, if you take the poorest, most disadvantaged neighborhoods in the city of Memphis and you look at the, you know, the, the per foot tax rate that they're paying, uh, the people living in those neighborhoods, the disadvantaged, uh, the impoverished people that live in those neighborhoods, they're paying a higher effective tax rate than the people living in the wealthy, affluent neighborhoods on the edge of the community. That's shocking. That's absolutely shocking. Now, the, the affluent person on the edge of the community will say, well, I pay, you know, triple the amount of taxes as that, uh, that, that individual uh, living in the impoverished, disadvantaged neighborhood. And that may be true on an individual basis. But you also have 10 times the space. You've got 10 times the amount of frontage. Uh, it takes us, you know, how many big tankers and truck trucks to provide fire protection out to your place five miles out on the edge of town? How many overpasses and interchanges have we built so that your commute in is very quick? You know, all of these costs just escalate through the roof as soon as we get out of those areas. Yet the per foot tax rate, the amount that they're paying on the space that they have is vastly less than the equivalent amount of space in these other neighborhoods. We need to focus on productivity because productivity will not only make our cities uh, stronger, wealthier, more prosperous, but literally it's the way to improve the quality of life for everybody. It's the way to make our cities better. It's the way to make our cities more livable. 
uh, it's the way to make them less fragile. And at the end of the day, it's the way that we're going to make them into strong towns. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into the podcast this week. Uh, sorry I missed a couple of weeks there on a little vacation and uh, had a couple of things fall through, but should be back in the swing of things now. Uh, we'll catch you again next week, and remember to keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. How's the elbow, Scott? You know, it's good. It's really good. It's great. Uh, I can't throw the ball at yeah. all. You're throwing your last ball from behind home plate, is what I'd say. Well, good news is, we want you at first. We want you to play first base for the Oakland A's. Okay, well, I've only ever played catcher. Scott, you're not a catcher anymore. If you were, our call wouldn't have been the only one you got when your contract expired. Yeah, hey, listen, no, I, I appreciate it. You're welcome. But the thing, the thing is, is uh, you don't know how to play first base. Scott? That's right. It's not that hard, Scott. Tell him, Wash. It's incredibly hard. Hey, anything worth doing is.